0: Positive Feedback
1: Loop. Three, two, one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Positive Feedback Loop podcast. This is your host, Ray. With me is Luis and Stephanie, my lovely co-hosts. Hello.
0: Hello, everyone.
1: And today we have a really interesting conversation. We will be having a really interesting conversation with Suzanne Tarkowski Tempelhoff. And Suzanne is an award-winning entrepreneur. She's a crypto activist and writer, worked internationally. She's built and sold multi-million dollar contracting businesses in Afghanistan and Libya. Her company has conducted pioneering research on governance for the U.S. State Department and the Department of Defense. Her aim is to leverage radical technologies and resilient peer-to-peer networks to create borderless and voluntary post nation state societies. Whoa, that's really interesting. What can that what can that mean, Suzanne? Can you tell us more about what a borderless nation what does that really mean?
2: Um well I think the nation state is kind of unfit to deal with the challenges that we're facing today in society. Not just because the world is becoming more global and interconnected through trade and transportation and travel and technology, internet, of course, but also because it's also increasingly becoming more local, right? Also, local communities have greater tools for self-autonomy um, than we've had since, you know, for a long time in, in on such a scale. So something like BitNation will be both more global and more local at the same time, and that's a better model that means that people can opt in and opt out of whatever communities, uh, style of societies they like, or whether it's a Hong Kong-like city-state or whether it's like a local grassroots community somewhere and just shape their own world as they wish.
1: Right, and BitNation, for our audience, is the world's first blockchain nation jurisdiction, according to you guys, and it was started in 2014. And this is really interesting because I think there's a, been a lot of news being you know discussed around this idea or this you know movement rather even revolution and you've been you know you've been on the new york times wired magazine vice wall street journal huffington post the economist cnn so there's lots of action happening here and how, how does that how does that how are these publications how are these different sources discussing Bitnation? how do you feel about that so far
2: I think a lot of the mainstream media think we're kind of crypto utopians or something that um generally the tone is wow, this is really cool and it's a really interesting thought, but would it would it would it ever work? I don't think they really realize how far ahead we are with the technology. I mean, even though they understand the blockchain and they understand the principle of it, they don't know to you know, how user friendly and advanced it actually is and how quickly we're building it. So um, so they think it's utopian and I think they are utopian for not seeing you know for thinking that the status quo is sustainable and not seeing the changes coming.
3: And what about the status quo, would you say that needs to change specifically? Because the borders of a state are one of the things that allow it to establish security and jurisdiction. So what about that? How is it that you see BitNation kind of Redefining this, and establishing that security.
2: So indeed, I mean that the most important function, as you said, is security and jurisdiction. Absolutely, but I don't see why we need uh, nation states to do that because um, <clears throat> I mean the nation state system, the Westphalian system, um, was basically basically if you have. A nation, it means to be a nation, according to the Westphalia system, it means all other nations need to recognize you as, as a sovereign nation, right? Which means it's a oligopoly, controlled by force, governance services, pretty much. And I don't see, why should we only have 200, 200 nations to choose between? I mean, it's kind of absurd. Think of it, if you would have, in Chicago, you would only have like one ice cream shop, and that ice cream shop would only be open like once every four years and then you could only choose between vanilla and chocolate as flavors and when you had to choose between them you had to fight with everyone in the same room whether you would have chocolate or vanilla right because you all had to have the same and we wouldn't accept that for most things in life but why would you accept that for governance services or security or jurisdiction I want to be able to go into whatever ice cream shop I want, whenever I want, and buy, I don't know, banana flavor, pineapple, strawberry, what have you, right?
1: What is your What is your favorite ice cream? Just
3: curious.
2: <laughs> Actually, it is chocolate, but <laughs> or coffee, <Okay>. I think. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> but <in>. nonetheless, <laughs> uh,
3: You you bring up the nations, other nations having to recognize existing countries. I mean, we've seen this before, uh, countless times. I mean, Taiwan and. Many others that I could go on. Um, but the reason why that's the case for the most part is because those are the nations that kind of have to interact with you, right? Conflict resolution requires these nations to acknowledge you as a nation. And there are very hard-coded systems of alliances, and, or not hard-coded, but they are, they are there, and different interests globally that allow for these nations to say, hey, it may not be in my interest to recognize this country over there. So it's more like, at least in my opinion, it seems more like it's like the ice cream shops, except if you go to one shop, you're now banned from the others because one of them had a deal with this one that said if you went to that shop, you wouldn't get supplies <laughs> anymore for your ice cream. Uh, so it's a little, bit, a little bit complex.
2: Yeah. And it's not only that you have restriction to going to different. Uh, I mean, it's also at a hurdle to do it. I mean, to travel isn't uh, if you have like lots of ice cream shops in one city, you know, you would assume it's a short walking distance or, you know, maybe a 10 minutes cab drive or something. Not that you would have to leave your entire family and friends behind and travel for days and then maybe be rejected by, you know, whoever, by the country you come to. You can't get in because you don't have the papers or right, write language. Yeah, no, that's that's complicated. You know, mm-hmm. that's a very high barrier to entry, right? So I think it's fascinating. I mean, we don't have to get all of those permissions because we offer our services to people wherever they live. So they don't have to move anywhere to accept it. Although there is kind of a group within BitNation are working on passports, actually. So uh, there is a conversation ongoing about how much they can be used and where, and if, if you know, if we can kind of negotiate like laissez-faire rights, so that people can move between actual nation-state jurisdiction, But that's that's really, like, a kind of fun side project. But the main project is obviously the software we're developing, Pangea, the jurisdiction. And that, you know, so let's say I live in Amsterdam, and the trash collection service here is really horrible, because they just come on, like, certain days, and then you have to put it out at, like, between... Six and seven a.m. in the morning on that specific day, and it's a complete mess. And and you get fined if you put it out in the night. God knows how it, you know how to even know that. And so, like I could use the Pangea jurisdiction, for instance, like a third party app on the Pangea jurisdiction that is some form of uh, peer-to-peer trash collection for my neighborhood in Amsterdam. And you know a lot of these services that you get from the nation states, or from cities that you live in, you pay additionally for anyways. They are not free, right? So I could also make it more competitive price-wise so if I wanted to build that as a dap on top of our jurisdiction, for instance. So, so in that sense, people can use us wherever they are in the world, You know, whether they are in Somalia or the Netherlands or US or, you know.
1: Using that example, do you think that everyone will Voluntarily start paying a little bit of money in order to collect their trash because now they're used to everything being "quote unquote" free, right? It seems that way. Dollars, right? But you know, it's an externality. Everyone doesn't pay the same amount, I guess, for their trash collection. It's Uh, assumed that trash will be collected. If you make it, if you allow all the users to independently outsource their trash collection. Uh, they might not do it, or they'll just throw it in the river or something, right? How do you regulate the environment when you know there's you're you're adding you're trusting people to care for the environment one and taking care of themselves too? So there's a lot of trust with individuals and people, or you're depending on them to do what you think they may do, but you know as we know, human beings are unpredictable. A
3: little yeah, bit. Yeah, just to add a, a little cherry on top of that. Especially when your neighbor, you have no idea if your neighbors are in any of 8,000 nations. So they could not even be in your, your nation. So maybe they might benefit from you having a cleaner sidewalk, which you may not want.
2: Well, you will probably choose your neighborhood based on the way your neighbors seem to behave, right? So in a neighborhood, just like you do now, right? In a neighborhood where people are known for throwing out trash out of the window, you probably wouldn't want to live there. Regardless if there is trash collection or not, and in many countries I've lived in, you pay extra for trash collection. Like in uh, Ghana, for instance, and knew people who paid a few dollars a week for someone who just walked around the neighborhood and throw out, you know, drove people's trash out to whatever the thing is. So I mean, this is quite common, and there are many things in. I mean, we think that in the West World, well, like you said earlier, Ray. Everything is provided for free, type thing, because we pay taxes. But there are a lot of things that aren't. For instance, uh, if you notarize a document, though, like here, it costs something like hundred euros or fifty euros. If you get married, me and my husband looked into getting married in UK, and that's like tens of thousands of pounds between between all the legal costs. Um, and this is just pure government costs. Or setting up a company, for instance, that costs money in most jurisdictions as well. So there are plenty of things that we don't think of that cost a lot of money, even though people think that, oh, you just pay taxes and then the rest just comes with it. But it doesn't.
0: I was thinking the same thing about trash collection because I've lived around the world and different services are expected depending on the country you're in. So I totally agree that it's... You know, It totally depends on where you live and what the expectations are of that geography and jurisdiction. My question is for you, the interplay between globalization and the preservation of culture. I think it's really interesting to think about governance as geography and then governance beyond geography and what that does to globalization versus how do we preserve culture and then dealing with multilingualism is another issue kind of that plays along with that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Well, I think if you look at a nation state, it's very non-cultural, actually. I mean, take somewhere like Switzerland. Some people speak Italian. Other people speak French. uh, Some people speak German, right? And they have a lot of different kind of tribes, really. It's very kind of tribal the nation-state, you know, actually getting rid of the nation-state would preserve local cultures far more. And this is what I found kind of strange with nationalism, who says, oh, we have to protect our culture and we have to protect our way of life and this and that. I'm all for protecting culture and protecting your way of life. But actually the nation-state is opposed to that by design, because it bounds together People of, who ha- are completely different from one another, and if people, some people want that, right? Some people would want to live in a city like New York, where you have all ethnicities and all, all religions and all origins and languages, and some people would want to live in a small village in France, where everyone is very ethnically similar and have lived in the same way for thousands of years, and that's okay, right? We should all be able to choose. Huh? But the nation state makes it much harder to choose. So, for instance, you could do, on on Pangea, you could build a nation for ISIS, right? I mean, not that it's something I would recommend, but if if you feel the need of being in, like, a super conservative group that shares certain values, which I myself consider extreme, of course, but but still, like, why shouldn't you, right? Or if you want to have a nation for, uh, you know, Bitcoiners or pirates or anonymous, why not? Or or you can have several nations, you know, or none at all.
1: So that's an interesting example. I'm just thinking about, you know, you have an organization that might be dangerous to the rest of the society, potentially. What their ideologies are maybe drives them. Maybe it's personal. Lots of different reasons what can drive them, but it's driving them potentially towards violence. How do other borderless nations or Pangaea nations protect themselves physically from other... Pangea nations from just overtaking their land. So this is more on the physical space. How is physical space protected? I guess that's the question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, there is actually one group called B-Umbrella that is building a third-party DAP, decentralized application, on top of uh, Pangea. For peer-to-peer security services, the website address is bumbrella.org. And I'm sure there will be a lot of other uh, service provided like that that will start building over time and provide local security, whether it's for a you know city or a neighborhood or a person over time. But then if you look at it from a more philosophical perspective, I think the other interesting thing is because now we have to share space with people that we don't necessarily agree with. You have to fight to, you know, make the society as you want, right? Like, you have to, like, if if we didn't have to get along or agree with each other, I think there would be less problem, because then, uh, like, why would ISIS have to fight with any other nations if they could just practice their own thing between them?
3: Well, I mean, specifically in the example of ISIS, their thing is that hmm. their thing is the right thing, and everyone's thing is the wrong thing, and they should die for it. So... I mean there w- there we always have people who have either misguided ideas or are impulsive in a, a violent way. So I and I'm curious about whether having people essentially have what sounds to me like private armies uh, be a good idea, even neighborhood watch groups that are armed. What if the city bans weapons, uh the next city over doesn't, then and that city has the ISIS group right? Like how does that work and I am a little concerned about the possibility of this this vision having leading to a world where uh, basically we all either have to arm ourselves or the ones that are unarmed are taken advantage of by those who are armed, but just in a much more uh, private way, rather than the government doing it, it'll be other companies doing it.
2: Well, I personally lived in places with a lot of private security, and I think it works quite well. I mean, in the sense that. I mean, I'm personally for like gun rights, you know. So I think if everyone knows that everyone is armed, the likelihood of someone breaking into your house if goes down a lot, right? If they assume that you have a gun there, so it's actually pretty good protection. I prefer to have an uh, armed pop, pop population than <coughs> sorry about that, uh, armed population than to have an armed government, which I find the most scary prospect, Uh, because, I mean, if you look throughout history, governments are the ones that have killed far more more people than any company or any non-government group. All the genocides throughout history have been done by governments, you know, from from the Soviet Union to the Nazis to the, uh, I mean, Cambodia. Uh, Right now we have uh, another genocide happening in Myanmar. Right uh, by the Buddhist democratically elected Buddhist government against the Rohingya Muslims, you know, Rwanda, Bosnia—it's all, it's always, always governments. So I find that prospect really scary. I don't trust what? the government at all. I trust an armed population far more.
1: So what? At what point does a group of people become a large enough government that they start causing these? genocide like what triggers that to happen and do you think that's a potential risk for bit nation or pangea nations in the future to you know sort of for something like that to happen on pangea
2: no it's impossible by design uh, first of all because we don't have an um, we are as we produce software that's what we do we don't uh, produce uh, military or anything uh, we don't have any land to protect either Because of the nation-state system, you have to fight over land, right? And it's like a centralized power fighting over controlling a swat of land, presumably with people living on it. It's not opt-in. Like Facebook, it's unlikely that Facebook would bomb Google because they would lose customers, right? So Facebook have to try to attract as many customers as possible, and therefore it would not be in their financial interest to bomb Google, and vice versa. So right now, we are not customers of the nation states. We are slaves, right? Because in the sense that they force their services up on us, and if we refuse to pay, they put us in a cage. But we, like Google and Facebook, is not forcing their services on us. You know, we go online and we choose to use them. So, so. It's sometimes
1: the- it it does feel that way. It feels like we're
2: not forced, but
1: heavily inclined to use their services because either all our information is there, all our data is there, and it really brings you know the topic of privacy to, to mind. Yeah. But what we're gonna do now, our lovely Piffles, is take a commercial break really quick, and uh, we'll be right back with Suzanne from BitNation.
4: Over 3 billion people have little or no access to governance services or legal protection. Millions more also participate in a global economy where they live and work across borders. BitNation's blockchain jurisdiction Pangea is the governance 2.0 infrastructure world citizens use to protect their lives and livelihoods. On Pangea, users build voluntary nations, create binding contracts, access a marketplace for governance services, and conduct peer-to-peer mediation and arbitration. Pangea's chat front end is built on a decentralized, encrypted, and quantum-resistant mesh network that can write smart contracts to any integrated blockchain. Download the Pangea app today by searching for BitNation in your app store and visit bitnation.co to find out more about our token sales starting on the 25th of March. Welcome to the Internet of Sovereignty.
1: Welcome back, everyone. Hope you enjoy that commercial break. We're back with Suzanne, founder of BitNation, and we're talking about privacy now. How does that work on Pangea? So you have this app called Pangea. You can download it on iTunes and Google Play. You can create your identity or citizenship there on Pangea uh, for different nations, right? And these nations have been created by different users, and these users primarily are looking to, what, build their own borderless, voluntary nation state. But how does privacy work? What, what technology underlies the system?
2: Yeah, so the Pangea jurisdiction, if you look at it from um, the high-level perspective, before I come back to answer your question, Ray, I'll just describe a little bit more about what the technology do Overall, so basically, as you said, you can create your own nations, DBVNs, you can make peer-to-peer legal agreements using smart contract technology, and you can resolve disputes attached to these agreements, which is backed by a reputation system that act as the incentive mechanism and enforcement mechanism for basically contract compliance. The front end is a chat interface because all agreements start with a conversation between one or more, two or more people, right? And most of the world are actually doing agreements like business agreements or private agreements through application like WhatsApp or WeChat, et cetera. It's becoming extremely common. But this is entirely end-to-end encrypted. We're using dov to record protocol. Uh, created by Signal, and the back end is a blockchain agnostic mesh network. So basically, what it means to be blockchain agnostic is right now we're working with Ethereum chain, but later on this year, we're planning to integrate Bitcoin through the rootstock protocol and then elements of EOS and Lisk as well. So in the future, I mean, first of all, it's because of resilience. So in case one chain proves to be more flexible or scalable than the other long-term, then we can switch. We are not dependent on one single chain. And also, so that people can choose what chain they want to use for each agreement. So you might, for instance, you might want to get married on the Bitcoin blockchain because it's the most secure one, but you might want to do a business, if you're doing a complex business deal, you might want to use the Ethereum chain instead because it it offers much more flexibility. Yeah, so that's kind of the high-level technological overview. So when you come to privacy, so obviously all communication is end-to-end encrypted, but as opposed to uh, all other applications, privacy-centric applications, if you look at, uh, for instance, WeChat or WhatsApp or even Signal, for that matter, WeChat is obviously not uh, security-centric, but yeah, like WhatsApp or Signal or Telegram, you have to share either your phone number or your email address, which is a basic security issue. And also, I mean, WhatsApp has an off switch. You know, It's a centralized company. Facebook can turn it off at any point, which has happened in the past. And same with Telegram. Signal is a little bit more resilient, but still have some centralized point of failure as well. So actually, this will be by far the most secure privacy friendly chat. So we have what we call pseudo-anonymity because the reputation system is the backbone of everything of of the jurisdiction, right? So in a nation state, if you you know you you you're basically you have like a carrot which is like a stick that says you know if you do something bad you go to jail and that's the enforcement mechanism. And on our on our software instead you have a carrot that says that if you behave well, you know here you have some tokens. And that is obviously judge career reputation system.
1: The reason I was uh, asking you about privacy to want our audience to kind of um, understand the context is that you were named on Wired as one of the biggest innovators of the world fighting for your online privacy. So that's why I just kind of wanted to see your you know perspective on what you guys are doing for privacy. And I think that makes sense. Putting things on the blockchain, I think, is generally been understood to be privacy centric. so.
2: Um, uh, well, well, not really, actually, because, I mean, the blockchain true.
1: is... True, depending data, on the protocol, right? right.
2: Yeah, and, and there are also, like, great dangers with it. So, for instance, if you would put biometric data on the blockchain, let's say, and you would tie that to, like, a person's, you know, I mean, biometric is, is per definition, the purpose of biometric is to be able to tie it to a fish body, right? That could easily, you know, lead to the, to the next genocide, I think.
1: Sounds like and, a dystopia, absolutely. Yeah,
2: I mean, I Is it think... Is easy actually,
1: to identify people and...
2: Yeah, exactly. So I think actually there are a lot of dangers with the blockchain, particularly when it comes to privacy that people are completely ignoring.
0: It started as a discussion of privacy, and it's so interesting how that turns into a discussion of identity very quickly and how privacy and identity are so inextricably linked, that what we want to keep private is almost the most integral to, to our identity, like biometric data or uh, including our health status or, mm. you know, those yeah, There's those stuff
3: things, that you don't want to broadcast necessarily. You
0: know? Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the and,
3: and also, connection between
1: it, those two. You don't want to broadcast, a but bit, you want to… You want to still use that data to help you make decisions and go through different systems. That data is still important, but you don't want it shared. So, how do you keep it private but also be interoperable with many different systems? That's the potential advantage of using some blockchain particles, not all.
2: Yeah, I think in in like the next few years, uh, the kind of division between you know there are like privacy extremists. uh, and I will kind of put myself in that camp, you know. And then, um, I mean, I'm not personally very private. I'm quite public. But, but in terms of what we're building and what we're fighting for, and then there are people like who are transparency extremists. Uh, like, let's say Assange would be a transparency extremist, right? Uh, and and someone like Moxie Marlinspike, who who have built Signal, would be like a, on the other extreme, like a extreme privacy activist. So, it's kind of like two camps that are working in the same space on many of the same technologies, but also very philosophically opposed in many ways, right? So I think that's going to be like a huge debate in the coming years, you know?
3: Listeners of the podcast will know that I am very private. I am a very private person, and I always like to say that so that people know, hey, look, if you don't find something about me, it's because I'm a private person. And it sounds a little bit like a balancing act, because... As you secure, as you try to ensure that there are fewer and fewer ways that someone's identity could be stolen, you also have uh, additional dangers that come in. But if you don't secure that, then you need some... Usually, I think the way that companies have done it is to have some centralized system for troubleshooting, right? Someone steals your identity, you call the company and they, they help you address that issue, or they should at least, right? Especially in something as important as your nation state status or your citizenship. These are things you don't want someone to steal. So, or God forbid for a bug to erase or for your history, something, you know, in the blockchain, not so much, but these are all still possible to a degree, even if extremely unlikely in some senses. So how would you, how do you address this? Do you have some sort of infrastructure for addressing issues? What's the, what's the deal?
2: Uh, Well, at the moment, we just use, boringly, GitHub to track issues and bugs, you know. Uh, And anyone can access it and open an issue, which a lot of people do. But, yeah, our entire infrastructure is completely decentralized. So there is nothing, there's no central point of attack. There are no servers that can be attacked. Um, There is no, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, we have centralized points, like our website, for instance, stuff like that, but not the software itself. But that also adds a a different security risk on its own, though, because that means, just like with Bitcoin, people need to be able to handle their own data, which is more challenging and less user-friendly, but it's far more secure. So there's always a bit of trade-off between security and usability, which will improve over the years as, you know, the software gets better and we find new ways to do it in smoother ways and things like that. I mean, as general kind of... Our thinking is that privacy should always be the default, the standard default, because if you want to be trans- if you are private and want to be transparent, if you want to broadcast something about yourself, uh, there is nothing preventing you from do that. But on the other hand, if everything is public and you want to be private, then it's already public, so then you have a problem, right? So the default should always be privacy and then um, out of there, people can, can choose themselves what they want to broadcast or not to. That's how we think about things.
3: Well, privacy is a wall that helps keep you from abuse, essentially. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. A, it's, it's a defense. And exactly. all citizens should have some level of privacy, which we have been trending away from uh, for quite yeah. some time, but it should not be uh, given away quite as easily as maybe we do.
2: Uh, I mean, like, imagine if you are, like, uh, gay in Iran, you know? then you need privacy because you can't get thrown in jail. I mean, it's, or in some places, executed, right? There are lots of communities. You really, really need privacy, like where it's, you know, radically important for survival purposes.
0: Well, and there are a lot of yeah, can... social media platforms that have different levels of privacy when you sign up. And it, what I find really interesting is it is an activity anybody can do, which is as you sign up for a different social media account, pay attention to whether the default is private or public. Do you have to? Do you start with a public account and have to make it private? Or do you start with a private account and need to make it public? And that tells you a lot about the company and how it thinks about privacy. It's a very interesting exercise.
2: Yeah, indeed. Yeah, but most companies, even if they say, oh, well, privacy-centric and everything, like Facebook is now saying, oh, we have, you know, uh, adapted OTR protocol for, Facebook Messenger and everything, but suppose it. Every all the data is stored on their servers. They control the data hundred percent. You just can't have that if you believe in privacy and security. You can't have that. So, so we will use IPFS for file storage and that sort of thing. So, so, so if people what's IPFS? A, uh, it stands for the um, Interplanetary File System. <laughs> Uh, it's kind of a funny Has name. Mars gone online yet? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Building for the future, right? <laughs> it's Basically, like a yeah, decentralized file storage system, which is working very closely with Ethereum. It's really a brilliant technology. If you do a contract, like your contracts and the codes of laws and all of that, will all be stored on IPFS. So people, it's not just that people control their own private keys and obviously their own Cryptocurrencies and all of that and their identity, but also all the files, everything, nothing literally is stored anywhere centralized or controlled by any third party.
3: Uh, Recently in the podcast, we had a series on Utopia. And that's uh, as you said before, you don't consider this to be a Utopian vision. You consider this to be more of a thing that's happening and it's just a movement we're going towards. But during the series, we talked about uh, different ways that we kind of consider the the future for humans and how we incentivize ourselves, what we do, who we are. And I'm curious, because you mentioned uh, a little bit at the beginning of the second half, the fact that you will not have a stick approach to governance, right? Where people will be incentivized to do things, but they won't be de-incentivized from not doing things. So... I'm curious what your approach would be in in cases where people do do things or where it's unclear if they have done things that we don't want them to do. Like, let's say someone gets home and their wife is dead, and you don't know if they got murdered or what happened. Who would be responsible for investigating this without it being following? You know, if it's like a private police company, there's always possibilities of bias because it's who's paying you. So, I'm curious what the approach that you're kind of think, foreseeing happening for this sort of situation?
2: So this is a great question. Actually, I would like to break it up into two questions, if possible, because I think it's really interesting, the psychological aspect of the carrot versus the stick approach. And then I, I think, and then it's really interesting what an open source investigation would look like, but also two quite different questions. Yeah, so if you look at it, from, uh, you know, if you go to jail, you know, for whatever, let's say, you know, in some states, and yes, weed is illegal, for instance. So you're a kid who is doing fine, you know, and then you're caught with a bit of weed and you go to jail for a year or whatever. And then you come out and you have experienced horrible things in jail, you know, and you are, are kind of traumatized by that. And then you have a record, you know, so it's going to be a lot harder for you to get a job. And then, you know, then... Instead, you start to deal a little bit of coke because you're going through a hard time and can't pay your rent, and it's an easy thing to do, right? And then you go to jail again for like, let's say three years this time, and you know, and you get like you become like a social outcast. and then you just go down through like a really vicious spiral. and then by the end of it, instead of doing something completely harmless, like a bit of weed or coke or whatever, then you know you rob a bank and you shoot someone you know and then and then the entire society is far worse off than if it would have been a restorative justice system where where you say okay so whatever you have done a crime and you know there is a context you know and we can help you to to restore your place in society and you know you will be better off we will be better off we will prevent more crime and more victims from suffering in the future, so i I do think it's actually more effective to have a restorative approach rather than a so that's what I mean with the carrot versus the stick approach to not put people in like a negative downward spiral because that is dangerous huh, for everyone that kind of philosophical aspect of that
1: the second question, I guess would be what happens if they do or what happens yes. if, they do, what happens do if
3: something? they do something heinous? yeah. Yeah,
1: and what are the systems in place, or potentially what could be systems in place to? Yeah.
3: I mean, we've seen trial by mob essentially before. Uh, Which I is mean, horrible. We, yeah. yeah, and and we've seen the internet try to solve. Remember the Boston bomber, uh, the Boston Marathon uh, bomber, who mm. the who Reddit thought they'd figured out who it was, and they fingered a completely innocent kid, just to basically make his life hell for the next month, mm. right? So. I'm curious how this would kind of be dealt with in a decentralized system.
2: Well, it's a very good question. I mean, something like the Pangea jurisdiction is obviously optimized for opt-in agreements where people voluntarily opt into an agreement, whether it's for business or private life or whatever. It's not that optimized to combat, you know, what would normally be called criminal law, I guess, like if like a murder or something, which is obviously not an opt-in agreement. Or if it was, it would be really, really weird.
1: That's <laughs> yeah, a strange society, uh, yeah. there.
2: That is obviously more challenging. I have seen... Uh, so that's where, obviously, things like private security and whatever comes in. But but I that's kind of a cliche to go back to that. But, uh, I mean, I have seen open source investigation. So there is a guy called Chris Ellis who did an open source investigation about the Moodle Exchange, because the Moodle Exchange uh, ran away with like a minor fortune in Dogecoins. And so he started to just collect everything, like all the tweets and everything that was public information that just on the website, everything and just make a case through GitHub, actually, and everyone could submit additional information. And so there are a few things and a few ideas like that floating around, and I think it's quite interesting. I haven't yet seen any you know, like, kind of full-stack solution for it. But I think it's going to kind of be something like that. So, I mean, you know, obviously, like, DBVM's, like, virtual nations are not going to start, you know, building jails anytime soon, right? So I don't think there will ever be, like, a time where that happens. But governance, like, local geographical governments, like, for instance city-states, right, or villages or neighborhoods or whatever, or intentional communities, they might have their own policies. So maybe they have a jail or maybe they have a contract when you enter as a resident saying that if you reside here, if you do anything like this, you will not be able to come back again. You know, we won't allow you back in. If you are at a festival, for instance, and you start a fight or something, and then you get thrown out from the festival. So I think that is much more likely to be the case in the future. I wish all
1: future future nations uh borderless nation states are like festivals. That would be amazing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Although it
3: would get pretty tiring pretty quick.
2: Pretty quickly, yeah.
3: <laughs> the hangovers
1: would be eternal. So, so you'd hop from festival to festival like every weekend you'd have a different there we you'd, go. you'd yeah. opt into a different nation state.
0: I think open source investigations are really I mean, they already happen, and I'm thinking of... You wouldn't consider it an investigation, but when pop stars or movie stars... When they are going on a new diet, all of these fans go out and find evidence that they might be on this diet. You know, photos of them at a restaurant with no roll on the table or, you know, or they're obviously not drinking alcohol. Maybe they're pregnant. You know, they there's this kind of open investigation that happens around celebrities where everyone pulls together their evidence to try to find the truth. And so <laughs> seeing this play out.
2: That's kind of horrible.
0: Yeah, yeah, it really is. That's a dystopian
3: world where everyone's a paparazzi. Oh yeah. God. Uh, the horror, the horror. but no.
0: as we know, That's it something. already happens, right? We see this, and as Luis pointed yeah. out, like on Reddit, it happens, and on Facebook, and it ties into a reputational system. If someone has a reputation, there are there are kind of public data points that can be pulled to to assess that reputation. What may concern me, or maybe a, the question that arises in my mind is, what if, I'm, you know, a man... I'm glad that
3: you're totally fine with the paparazzi method, by the
0: way. Yeah, I don't know if I'm totally fine with it, but I, I'm acknowledging its presence in the world already, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we're already in a dystopia, but I think that I worry about the people who don't have enough of, not a reputation, but a people who care about them. So let's say in Luis's example, a man, well, we won't say he even murdered his wife. We don't know yet. No, he
3: he just arrives home to find his wife dead and now he's under suspicion of having murdered his wife. Right,
0: and his wife is dead. We don't know
3: if he did murder her or not. We're just outsiders.
0: Right. Right, so in this situation, if we have decentralized governance of sorts, how would, let's say this woman really has no friends. I mean, she's still just as worthy of a human being, but she may be more quiet or maybe the husband kept you know forced her to stay at home and so she doesn't have anyone who may be interested enough in opening this sort of open source investigation to see why she died I wonder how reputation has kind of a dark side of people caring about you and therefore looking into things
3: so what you you're know, basically saying like, is, uh, are you so, so, can you well, be unworthy of the effort to receive yeah, services in a sense?
0: Yeah, I mean another philosophical question, maybe, but how would it
2: well, play out? So first of all, um, I would like to clarify. So reputation on Pangea isn't attached to popularity or attention. Mm. It's it's entirely meritocratic, right? So you only get so when you enter into a contract or successfully execute on a contract on a volunteer agreement, or you resolve a dispute attached to a contract, then you get non-tradable reputation tokens. And the reason they are non-tradable is because we don't want people to be able to buy or sell reputation either. So it's entirely, it's not based on human judgment whatsoever right and we did that for that very reason we don't want reputation to be a popularity contest it should be because a person performs or not on on the agreements they have entered into so reputation and popularity are two entirely different things so you can have an excellent reputation but be completely unknown which is a different question from the question you asked i realized that i just wanted to clarify the difference so in terms of the question you asked what happens if If someone is alone and don't have money and whatever, can they still receive services? So first of all there are a few things to consider. One services are likely to be when services are competing on a free market, they typically become a lot more cost efficient, the cheaper and more widely available, so more people can afford them, right? Like if you look at phones like twenty years ago, no one no one could afford, you know, a mobile phone. It was like the elite who had a mobile phone, right? And now just 20 years later, you know, you can buy a cheap smartphone for like $5, you know, like a cheap Chinese knockoff smartphone, right? And so it's like widely available to everyone in the world. Even, you know, I was in Ghana uh, a few years back uh, to do some blockchain land title pilots, and, like, a lot of the guys in Ghana who who are in their 20s had, like, five smartphones, you know? I mean, it's they weren't the poorest in the society, but not the richest either. They were just kind of, you know, university students. Yeah.
1: yeah can so, you but, imagine if the government was the one building that technology? I don't think it would get there yet. Not because I think the government yeah. is inherently bad and slow well maybe but more because it's just so big, <laughs> and i don't think it yeah. and it's not yeah I, most are but i think it's also not their responsibility and i guess my question now is what is the responsibility of the government unless yeah louise go ahead you
3: have i was going to point out the government gave everyone gps for free so there's that <laughs>
1: yeah well so there are investments that the government <laughs> makes that Perpetuates into civil society as well, that's true. A lot of the defense research technologies you know trickle down to the consumers at the end of the day. so there is that that's a good point. But what is the role essentially of the government that you envision? Well, or is it not a government I guess it's it's a framework built on a blockchain
2: um, right, so I'll get to that in a second, but first to get back to Stephanie's point as well. Don't you sorry, know? <laughs> Like, also, if you are poor and, you know, blah, blah, I think just like now, there will be a lot of organizations, you know, there are, like I know one guy who's building ba- a basic income system, also on top of Pangea, you know, which is completely peer-to-peer and opt-in. And a lot of, like, dApps that are blockchain insurance, basically, tokenized insurances, which are widely available. So I think poverty as a whole will decrease significantly really. And when poverty decreases, that means access to services increases, obviously. So I just wanted to, to make that point. I, so I just,
1: what, when, you said, when you said that poverty will decrease, is there a possibility that the opposite might happen and you'd have elite people living their life and then you'd have more poverty potentially occurring?
3: Kind of, the You people, mean like an ex- extreme capitalism?
2: No, because I think it's going to be you know, I mean, if you look at the tokenized economy, so for instance, I used to write updates about BitNation on True Medium, which is free, but I don't get paid for doing it. And now instead I write all the BitNation updates on Steemit, where I get paid, you know, when people vote for the article, I get Steam. And same on Pangea, right? When you earn non-tradable reputation tokens, you get rewarded With path, and I think people are going to start doing all these like small tasks in life that you do, you would do anyways, and not on uh, are they, you know, mostly free, but you also get paid for doing just day-to-day tasks. So I don't, I think people will have kind of a sort of tokenized, unconscious basic income through having so many small streams of income you know, everywhere through daily tasks.
1: That sounds great. So basically I can live, we can live our lives, do the things that we normally do every day, like have conversations with people and and i teach people things, uh, even painting. We'd have a different meaning of being an artist in a way, because now you can create things and almost immediately slowly start receiving benefits from it based on how people react to your art.
2: Exactly. It will be a much more liquid economy.
3: That's actually one of the things that's coming to the blockchain world. Art is for the first time they, they just sold a picture of a flower for like a hundred thousand dollars or something like that on blockchain because it, it brings rarity to a thing that could be mass produced before. And trackability, yeah. right? You know yeah. it's yeah. real. Well scarcity, yeah, yeah, and exactly. You can it's yeah. basically certified.
0: Well the blockchain provides a provenance. So now things Yeah, exactly. You know, you can't have frauds because of the provenance it provides, which is fascinating you you don't necessarily have to say who has owned every this thing but it does technologically show that provenance I, I think that's one of the benefits to the art world of the blockchain.
2: Definitely but also in a much more liquid way that someone who is let's say a graphic artist or paint artist could just upload, their artwork to a platform. Uh, I'm I'm sure either it exists, or this will be created very soon. And then people can vote on it. And if they are upvoted, then they receive tokens, you know, as a compensation for putting on something people like. And then, you know, they receive like a little bit of money on, on that. And then they receive a little bit of money on, let's say, voting on a blog post and a little bit of money on that kind of thing. And that kind of, slowly grows to an economy where people can live quite comfortably and easily you know on doing whatever they like doing basically quite effortless effortlessly
1: i actually have one question from a listener from a piffle uh david from he's a hubspot developer and he asked does success on this depend on cr- cryptocurrencies being widely accepted no i think that we're on that trend anyways, but do you think that there is risk with cryptocurrencies as a technology, maybe due to quantum computers or something failing? Is that something that you're concerned with at all?
2: Uh, well, yes, I'm very concerned with uh, quantum computing. Uh, I mean, when we built our backend, uh, it was built with that uh, like in the basic designs, mesh, our mesh network backend will be quantum safer. Uh we are, we're already experimenting with a few algorithms, but we haven't chosen which ones to implement yet. But within probably a year or two, it will be quantum safer as well. So, and I think there will be. I mean, there are more and more currencies that are working on that as well, and and Bitcoin too could add could add it, it? actually. So. You know, there are solutions for it. But yes, that's definitely a problem. And then also there are regulatory challenges. Like, obviously, no one can outlaw a cryptocurrency because, you know, there's, again, a point of attack. But they can make life more difficult for people who run centralized infrastructure, like certain wallets or exchanges and et cetera. And so it could slow it down, potentially. I mean, those challenges are real and exist. And we just kind of take them as they come, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's going to be a lot of challenges in the next few years, even decades, you know, as yeah. these kinds of technologies begin to get adopted by individuals, by groups, by societies, mm. by even bigger mega cities, you know, you can imagine how that can develop in the future. So uh,
2: it's going to be like, I think big na- nation states, like, like Russia and Saudi Arabia and yes. And, Places like that, which are kind of big and inflexible, will crack down further on things like cryptocurrency and privacy and you know encryption of all kinds. Yeah. While smaller governments, which we're already seeing, right, like Estonia or Singapore or Switzerland or Liechtenstein or uh, United Arab Emirates, who are you know flexible and who want to get ahead in the game both technology wise but also governance service wise. Will be even more become even more open to it and compete against virtual nations, right? like with nation, on a global market for service providers and and embrace the technological change. So I think we're going to see a very big shift in the next year, but who the the response from countries will be enormously different, one country to another,
3: yeah, I mean it, that brings up the the ice cream issue, right? The other, you might you might want to go to my ice cream store, but the other one has you know nukes and <laughs> jet fighters that basically say no 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 no. no. I go to my ice cream store. Uh, yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> all right, see, this is why we can't have ice cream stores. Like
3: that. <laughs> ice cream causes all the world's problems. I say ice cream blockchain.
2: That's the real exactly. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well,
1: the beauty is there'll always be new flavors, potentially. So there's these are experiments, right? So no one can no it's one can say we'll we are the final government, although I do see potential risk where you get a big enough d v and PN, right, or decentralized voluntary nation and it gets big enough to the point where potentially people might not be able to leave? or is that is there any contracts possible where? The person cannot leave. Is there any contracts that can be built with Mm a nation's um,
2: decentralized borderless nation? So, in the basic DBVN code, there is always an exit option, you know, and obviously in the front end design and everything. But since, you know, it's not a centrally controlled platform, so of course people can potentially upload their own smart contract, uh, a DBVN smart contract that says that, that people who are opt in can't leave. So yes, yeah, no, it's it's not impossible and if people you know, we obviously try as much as possible to build tech that people will use wisely, right? But we can't technically prevent you know, people from doing it if they really want to, you know?
1: Right, I know. And I think that's part of your, you know, Almost part of your mission is to educate people around these topics because it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take, as we said, years, decades for people to understand how this works. There are people who still haven't really gone online even or even opened up their email address. So there's tribes and communities, and it's very possible for someone to come up to them, them, give them this... Right, but you can imagine people or organizations go into these tribes giving them really shiny devices that can do lots of crazy things, telling them to click here and they're basically signing their life away to this. But what uh, they do have are mobile
0: phones. I mean, when I, I also, was in Botswana and Zimbabwe, you have people who don't yeah, even have clean water and they've really. got a mobile phone. So
2: Exactly. Yeah. But but you know, that's also why we have said anonymity, right? So if you are in a nation, they turn out to be, like, in the fine line, wish you didn't bother reading when signing the contract. It turns out they're, like, cannibal and will eat you by, you know, within five years <laughs> oh dear. or something. Yeah. Right? This is, this is also like pseudo so anonymous, so, so that you can potentially just throw away your identity and create a new one. It's difficult to do. It takes time because, you know, we want, there is a barrier to enter because it takes time and energy to build up your reputation, right? Yeah. But it should be possible for everyone to do. So I guess that is the kind of safety mechanism. It was comes to us, right? Uh
3: cannibal nation. Our motto is who's for dinner.
2: (laughs) Who's for dinner? dinner.
1: (laughs) There's a lot more we can talk about, but I think for now we wanna end the conversation and really just thank you for your time and we really appreciate Suzanne. Uh we got a lot out of it. Hopefully our audience, you know, enjoyed it and um Thank you again. Did you have anything else you would like to add at the end? Is there something we missed potentially? Or you should maybe talk about how people can, you know, get active and participate in this.
0: How can they follow you? Are you um, on Twitter or somewhere where people can kind of read what you're writing and thinking?
2: BitNation have a blog on Steemit uh, where I post things on. And there is a BitNation Twitter. But I am quite active on Facebook, though, so you can follow me there. Um, and then the Telegram... Group The BitNation Telegram group, which is called Pangea BitNation, is the most active community forum at the moment. So I recommend everyone to join the, the the Telegram group. And then obviously our ICO starts on March 25, 4 p.m. CET, Central European time. So buy our tokens, be part of the future.
3: Thank you for coming on.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, it's Very
3: great to be chat. here.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Indeed. and. All our lovely pitfalls, thank you so much for listening. Talk to you later. And as always, stay crazy.